0: If you've got your Bibles, I'd invite you, if you would, to take them out, turn them on, and join me, if you will, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 14. Now that some of our chairs are back together, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you or have one of your very own, you're welcome. There should be some Bibles, hopefully, somewhere in the chairs in front of you. You are welcome to take those out and use them. If you don't have a Bible of your very own, you want to keep that, keep that as our gift to you. If you'd rather have one still in the wrapping or something like that, We'd be glad to uh, provide you with one before you leave this morning. But we are continuing on in a series through the gospel of Mark, and we are just a few weeks away. Um, We're here at the end of May, and we will be uh, done looking at Mark about uh, near the end of June. So we've just got a few more weeks, and we are in the part of Mark where Jesus, as we were—last time we were together and, and Brother Joel brought a word, Jesus had been arrested, and this morning we'll see him brought on trial in Mark chapter 14. You know, as I was growing up and going through school, especially when I was in college, one of my least favorite requirements for school was a group project. I couldn't stand group projects because, you know, inevitably you end up in a group and there's some slacker that's there who is not going to carry their own weight but going to drag everybody down and everybody else is going to have to make up for that individual slack. And I despised the idea that my grade was going to be tied to the performance or the lack thereof of any other person. Because inevitably there was that one who thought about the, that the frat party on Friday was more important than our final grade in whatever class it was that we were um, pursuing. They left extra work or worse. They, they, their laziness or their um, incompetence or whatever it was left a the group then suffering under a lower grade. You know, as we gather, as shared earlier, that one of our core values is that we gather because we're not meant to live this life alone. And we remind ourselves of that over and over again, but something that we have to understand is that even though the Lord created us out of relationships and for relationships to be part of one another so that we're not supposed to live in isolation or despair or loneliness, but instead we're supposed to come alongside of one another to build one another up, to pray for one another, to bear one another's burdens, to live this life with one another, Our lives as Christians and as a church family is not a group project in the sense that you and I will one day share a final grade. My faithfulness or lack thereof as your pastor will have no effect on your moral standing or your righteousness before a holy God. And your faithfulness or lack thereof as a church body will have no effect on my final standing before God. Because in God's eyes, you and I are never compared to one another or any other human being. Instead, you and I have a much higher standard because God's standard is never good or good enough. God's standard is Jesus. And we'll see this morning that Jesus is perfect. And in this passage of Scripture, we see what happens when an imperfect person is held up against the standard of the perfect Jesus Christ. Look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 14, we're going to read from verse 53 down through the end of the chapter in verse 72 together this morning. Mark writes, They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in in their midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Meanwhile, Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servants, girls, of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither knew nor under- I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man was one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystander said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He broke down and wept. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, as we sit now before your word, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill my heart, my mind, my mouth, with the truth that you want proclaimed this morning, the truth that is exemplified in the character and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your provision. I thank you for your grace and your mercy, which is on such display In this passage of scripture so let me proclaim it clearly let us be moved to confession to repentance let us be moved to obedience for your glory alone it's in jesus name we pray amen and amen in this passage of scripture we see two trials and just as a bit of preliminary something that i've mentioned i think as we have moved through the gospel of mark but that really happens and and is, is crucial to understanding this passage of Scripture is understanding Mark's relationship to Peter. Mark was Peter's protege. He was his secretary who traveled around with Peter. He was a very close friend. He learned much from Peter. And so as Mark is recording this story, most scholars believe, and there's plenty of evidence, that Mark... Is not, was not one of the disciples who followed Jesus. Instead, Mark, Mark learned all of this from Peter. And so the gospel of Mark is really Peter's perspective and what Peter gave to Mark. And so we see Peter on uh, playing a prominent role throughout the gospel, but no greater role than right here. And it's something powerful to know that this is something, this testimony of Peter's greatest failure is something that Peter found important enough to pass on to Mark, and Mark found important enough to pass on to you and me. And so in this story, as we see Jesus being led away by the, the crowd that came to arrest him in verse 53, Jesus or Mark, or Mark interrupts the story almost in verse 54 to share with us the fact that Peter has, has run away in the garden, but he has followed behind them and he is pursuing Jesus and, and this crowd that has arrested him even into the courtyard of the high priest. The reason that Mark does that is he links these two accounts so intimately together that you can't see one without seeing the other. Because Peter follows them in, then there's the break of what happens with Jesus, and then we come back to Peter's story. And the language that Peter is, or that Mark is using here, wants to communicate to us that these two events are happening simultaneously. They're happening alongside one another. If we were able to pull up two screens and they had the same timeline running underneath them, what you would see is you would see Jesus on trial on one screen and you would see Peter on trial on the other screen happening at the exact same time. So I want you to kind of hold that in your mind because it's impossible for us, whether we're watching a television show or reading a book or, in, or hearing a story, to comprehend two simultaneous scenes, which is why you'll see in movies, you'll see one act play out and then you'll see the other act play out and they're happening at the same time. Does it ever frustrate you when you're watching one of those action movies and you're seeing the clock tick down, tick down, tick down, tick down, and it's got three seconds left? And then it cuts away to a scene that's, that's 15 seconds long. And you're going, it should have blown up by now. It's because the scenes are happening. You're actually rewinding some 15 seconds in time. And you're seeing them one after the other, but they're happening simultaneously. That's what's happening in this passage of Scripture. You with me? Okay. So in the first trial, what we see... Is Jesus, in all of his power and his might and his humility, on display, his gentleness on display, as we learn Jesus' record is flawless? As Jesus is put on trial, Mark shares with us in what happens the reality that Jesus' record is flawless. Now, there's been a lot of debate about whether or not these proceedings were illegal or valid. We have some evidence of Jewish laws. And there were certain um, requirements for a capital crime that the judges were required to follow. And everything that Mark records here breaks every single one of those rules. The problem is those rules come from some 200 years after this account. So we don't know whether or not they actually took place at that time. So, but regardless, what we see from the very beginning is that as Jesus is brought in before this council... That could have been all 71 or 76, I think, uh, members of the Sanhedrin, but most likely it was just a quorum that was there in Caiaphas' house. He's brought before them what we know from the very beginning is that these judgments have already made up their mind. In verse 55, we find out that the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. This is not justice, this is not a fair trial. The court is stacked against Jesus. They've already made up their mind. All they need is the evidence to prove it. And that is what they are on a fact-finding mission for. They're not trying to figure out whether or not Jesus is actually innocent. They want proof that he is guilty so that they can kill him. And so they start hearing testimony against him. But the testimony doesn't meet their legal standards. This is one of the reasons why this isn't actually, as some people want to say, a kangaroo court. They've just thrown out all of the rules. If they'd thrown out all of the rules, they would have accepted the false testimony that didn't mesh with one another. And they would have just railroaded Jesus. But they're still holding themselves to some type of standard. And so they're looking at these, and listening to these testimonies of these witnesses, they're even listening to people who, as, as Mark shares with us, are bearing false witness against Jesus. But even in their false, in their lying, they haven't thought of, of enough ahead to get their lies on the same page. And none of their lies are lining up with one another. And so Mark exposes the reality that despite all of their best attempts to find evidence worthy of condemning Jesus Christ to death, they find none because Jesus' record is flawless. Jesus' record is perfect because he was perfect. They can't find evidence of unrighteousness because Jesus wasn't unrighteous. He was the perfect and spotless Lamb of God who lived up to absolutely every expectation that the Father had. He was perfect and spotless and righteous in every possible way. He knows it. We know it. They know it. They're lying about him. And he's silent. There's power in silence, brothers and sisters. Silence is oftentimes very convicting, which is one of the reasons why we don't like it very much. And we fill up our lives with noise. A TV on in the background, music going on in the car, thoughts racing through our heads. We're uncomfortable with silence because silence has the power to expose lies. It has the power to expose sin in our hearts, and in our lives. And so we busy ourselves and move forward. But Jesus here, even in the face of lies, sits silent as all of their attempts and all of their arguments fall flat around him. He doesn't need to defend himself. And we can learn something from this, brothers and sisters in Christ, because there are too many of us that are also ready and easily jump to our own defense, and in doing so, we make things worse. And if we had just sat back and said, you know what? I know you're lying. You know you're lying. I know you're wrong. You know you're wrong. And as the proverb says, I'm not going to answer a fool so that the fool can be proven to be a fool. Now with that, there's another proverb that says, sometimes you need to answer a fool in his folly, lest he think he's wise. But we're oftentimes too quick to jump to it And in doing so, we leap out there to defend ourselves, to defend something else, and we haven't thought it all the way through, and we get angry, and we get frustrated, and we end up defaming Jesus more than defending him. In our social media posts, in our conversations with our co-workers, in the lives that we live with one another, we're so quick to defend ourselves and our particular viewpoint against lies or deceit that we end up doing more damage Than we ever did good. And so we need to learn the power of silence. Because Jesus is silent. He doesn't need to defend himself. He trusts God to do that for him. God will vindicate him. Despite the fact that he dies, God will raise him from the dead because he is spotless and righteous and perfect. But there's one thing that Jesus Christ can't be silent about any longer. And what he can't be silent about is his identity. And so as Jesus is silent, Jewish law required that a defendant would defend themselves. They would speak up. But Jesus knows that anything he's going to say is going to be used against him, so he's silent and lets everything fall flat on its face until the chief priest, in all of his power and authority, stands up and says, tell me. He does isn't even really, in the, in the Greek, this isn't a question. It's a statement. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. Son of the blessed is a, is a way, because the Jewish people didn't like to use God's name, and so they would say something that was close enough to God that they wouldn't come to the place where they would defame God or blaspheme God. So son of the blessed is just another way, a Jewish way, of saying the son of God. You're, and so the chief is saying, this is what everything that you're doing is leading us to conclude. It seems like this is your conclusion. You are the Messiah. You are the son of God, Right? And that's when Jesus opens his mouth and says, I am. I am. And then he quotes two Old Testament passages, one from Daniel and one from Isaiah, where he says, You will not only, not only am I the Messiah, which is a title of of a savior for Israel, which doesn't necessarily imply divinity. Jesus takes it one step forward. He doesn't just say, affirm that he is the Messiah. He, refers, he affirms that he is also the Son of God. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Not only does he claim to be the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, he, and the world, he also claims to be the Son of God. He claims divinity, which is blasphemy if he's wrong or if he's lying. Which is why you see the chief priests rip his garments. Why he turns around and says, we don't need any more evidence. The trial's done, locked and up. Everybody's heard him. He's committed blasphemy. Blasphemy is a, is, a, is a crime punishable by death. So what do you say? And everybody then condemns him as deserving death. Problem is, he didn't lie. And he wasn't wrong. He was God. He is God incarnate come to save his people. But that is something that the rulers are blind to. And in their blindness and in their rage, they condemn him to death for blasphemy, and they begin to mockingly assault him. He's humiliated at the hands of his jailers and at the word, and they actually take in this instance, they use the word of God against him. There's a prophecy in Isaiah that the Messiah would be able to judge, not based on what he sees and not based on what he hears, but based on what he knows. And so they blindfold Jesus and they start beating him and saying, if you're the Messiah, you can tell us who did that. They're making fun of God's word as they make fun of God's Messiah, humiliating him in the process blind to the fact that as they challenge him to prophesy, they are fulfilling the prophecies that he has been speaking throughout the Gospel of Mark, that they would do this in the first place. And against this display of Jesus in a powerful display of silence and righteousness and holiness as they can find no fault in him, we're introduced to what's going on with Peter simultaneously. So as we leave Jesus being humiliated at the hands of sinners, Let's rewind the tape, if you will, to the exact same starting point, and there we find Peter entering into the courtyard of Caiaphas' house while Jesus is upstairs, and all of that takes place. Peter comes in, and we find that in Peter we find ourselves. And unlike Jesus' perfect record, his flawless record, we find that Peter's is a failure. And whereas Jesus is perfect and he has flawless, we see that our record is not flawless, it's a fiasco. Mark presents Peter's trial, as informal as it was, right alongside Jesus's. And there are so many similarities between them. Think about it. They're both, Peter and Jesus, are interrogated by a hostile crowd. Mark presents these accounts in a series of threes that begin to escalate until they build to a final escalation. When Jesus is there, there's the testimony of false witness. And then there's the declaration that the false witness is about what he said about the temple. And then finally, there's the confrontation with the high priest. And in in Peter's trial, we see that there's this kind of informal, this little, this girl comes up to him, a young woman comes up to him and says, hey, aren't, aren't you one of those followers of Jesus? And then she grabs everybody else's attention and says, hey, hey, he's one of them. And then they all recognize it and they come after him. Say, there's no doubt in our mind that you're one of them because you're Galilean. Your accent betrays you. You've got to be one of them. And so both accounts work in this series of threes as they escalate. And both accounts, both accounts fulfill Jesus' prophecy, proving his perfection even further. On the one hand, as Jesus is beaten and condemned to death, fulfilling the prophecy that he gave to the disciples perhaps months prior to this that this would happen but then here at the end of Peter's account Jesus' prophecy that Peter would betray him three times even before the rooster crowed a second time that night it's a fulfilling of prophecy but the ways that they differ are the ways that expose our hearts before God Jesus is facing down some of the most powerful men in Jerusalem at the time Peter's primary accuser is a young woman. He's a strapping big fisherman. And here's this young porter woman accusing him. Jesus is facing liars who are manipulating his words to bring false accusations, but Peter is being questioned with the truth. It's true. There's no lies. She knows it, they know it, he knows it. Jesus faces the lies with silence, but Peter faces the truth with lies. Peter's story is our story, and it's the story of so many Christians throughout the world. The turning point of the Gospel of Mark is when Peter realizes Jesus' true identity and declares him to be the Messiah. And the very next thing that Jesus teaches is that if we are going to be followers of Jesus, what must we do? We must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after him. The way of the Christian is the way of self-denial, not self-preservation. What is Peter in the midst of right here? He's doing everything he can to save himself, and he's failing. Bring a little bit of pressure. Bring a little bit of, of, of social angst. Bring a little bit of difficulty into a Christian's life, and you will find out what kind of Christian they actually are you will find out which one of those four soils they are that Jesus shared all the way back earlier in Mark. Whether or not they are the good soil that bears fruit or they are the the shallow soil, the rocky soil, or, or the road. And that pressure has come in various ways throughout the centuries, but there's no greater way that it has come against Christians than in persecution. Jesus gave him a warning that this was going to happen, and that persecution happened to the early church. And so, Mark's primary audience, his first audience, was the Roman or the Christians in Rome, suffering under the hand of the evil empire, emperors of Rome, persecuting the church, killing them, tr- putting them on on false trials, throwing them in front of the lions and the and the tigers in the Colosseum to be ripped apart. That's who Mark is trying to encourage with this story. People who are experiencing, in an, in an increasingly hostile way, persecution and the possibility of death for standing up for Jesus. And Mark wants them to see that Peter faced the same thing. And that's not just battles that existed back then in the first century. It's battles that the church is facing all around the world today. And it's a battle that is becoming increasingly possible for the church of Jesus Christ in America over the next few decades. And the question comes that we have to ask ourselves is in preparation for this, when did Peter lose this battle? Peter denies Jesus three times. Did he lose it as he was walking in? Did he lose it on the first question, the second question, the third question when he invokes curses on himself and upon the crowd? Or did he lose it somewhere else? I would argue that he lost it. He lost the battle hours earlier when he was challenged by Jesus three times in the garden stay awake, stay in prayer. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Just look at the page prior to this, and you'll find that Jesus comes back and finds him sleeping, and he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And Peter is sleeping. He lost long before the challenge ever, became, ever started. And so many Christians are walking through this world completely unprepared, with no spiritual armor on their bodies, because they have done nothing in the presence of the Lord. They have been faithless in their time before the Lord, in prayer. And in equipping themselves and in spending time in fellowship with God in His Word. Peter lost the battle before he ever walked onto the battlefield. And we have to realize that we don't know what's happening this week. We don't know what's happening next month. We have to be preparing ourselves for that now in our quiet places as we fellowship with the Lord and we grow in our relationship and dependence upon Him. That's where battles are one. On our knees, in prayer, in God's presence. So that we are prepared in advance for what's going to happen. We face the decision to remain faithful to Jesus each and every day. Not just in front of our friends, not just in front of our co-workers, not just in front of our families or our neighbors. We face it inside of our hearts. Because the reality is, it doesn't just take Public opposition to cause us as Christians to crumble. Our own hearts are fighting against the Spirit. They're fighting against our holiness as we are constantly trying to rebuild what God has torn down in our own sinfulness. You see, another significant similarity is the difference that happens at the end of this passage. At the end of each section, both men are humiliated. One is being humiliated by others who are beating him and mocking him. But Peter is being humiliated by his own conscience that's condemning him for his failure. As he sits broken and weeping. And in the end, when we see ourselves as we really are, as we look at Peter's story, we see that that's my story. Not just some point down the line when I'm confronted by my faith by an unbeliever, but right here and right now in my faithfulness to God. Tomorrow morning in my private quiet time before the Lord. Tomorrow afternoon when I'm or evening when I'm watching a television show and a racy commercial comes on. Tomorrow... Um, midday when I'm looking at my plate and I'm seeing all the food that's there and I'm insecure about myself and about the way that other people are going to see me. We are fighting that battle again and again and we are failing as we listen to our sinful self, as we listen to the whispers of the enemy in our hearts and in our minds, and this causes us to be hopeless because when we see ourselves for who we really are, we see that we aren't just flawed, we're failures. And we have to look outside of ourselves for someone else. And that is when we have to look beyond ourselves to Jesus Christ and realize that in the gospel of Jesus, it is his record that is our hope and not our record. It's his perfection that stands in our place. We all know what it is to be humiliated by our sin, to be overwhelmed by the reality that we have failed again and again and again, and we listen to that voice inside of our heads continuing to condemn us, to talk about the ways that we have failed and we have let God down one more time, and we're broken at the end a way that we are exposed as failures. And that's when we have to realize that when we are humiliated by our failures, we can trust in the record of the one who was humiliated for our failures. Jesus was perfect. His record was flawless. And yet he was condemned as deserving to die. Peter's life was full of flaws and failures. His life was a fiasco, and so is yours, and so is mine. But the, one of the beautiful truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it is about more than just that Jesus died to take our punishment. We live our lives so often focused on Jesus dying on the cross that we ignore the fact that Jesus lived 33 years of perfect, righteous, spotless life that prepared him for the cross. And the author of Hebrews tells us that in every single way that you and I are tempted and we fail, Jesus was tempted and he succeeded. Your record and my record is flawed. It's a fiasco. Jesus' is flawless. And in the end, when we stand before God to hold up for him the account of our lives, the only thing that you and I have to offer in our strength is a report card to God full of F's failures. God's standard, as I said earlier, isn't good. It isn't good enough. It's perfection. It's 100% all the time. I ask students this all the time. If you were expected in order to graduate to make an A in every class, could you do it? And some of them are pretty confident. Yeah, I mean, I think I could do that. Okay, what if you were required to make an A in every class from kindergarten through 12th grade? Would you be able to do that? And at that point, most of them drop off, but there's a few of those brainiacs that are sitting out there going, yeah, of course, I've made straight A's my whole life. Duh. What if you were required to make a 100%, a perfect score on every assignment and every test and every class from kindergarten through 12th grade? Could you do it? Have you done it? And that's the point where they all realize, well, that's just impossible. Nobody can be perfect. But perfect is God's standard. And perfect is what you and I fall far short of over and over and over and over again. And if we were standing before God, what we would hand him is a report card full of failures. But by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in that moment we won't hand god our report card and instead jesus will swap it for his and we don't just reclaim jesus's death on the cross we claim his record of righteousness for every single time that we failed why does mark pit these two right side by side against one another because he wants us to see that as peter falls jesus succeeds and where peter falls jesus succeeds and where you fail and where you mess up and where you have flawed and where you have sinned jesus has succeeded and god doesn't see your failures he sees christ's success that is the gospel that is what this is about that is the good news for you and for me not just in the past but tomorrow when you mess up again and next week when you mess up again, and next year when you mess up again. God's already written an A where you deserve an F because Jesus has done it all. And so when we trust in him, we receive the gift of Christ's righteousness in our place. We can be confident. We can be silent when we need to be silent. We're drawn to God in those quiet moments when we need to grow in our relationship with him and in prayer and in faithfulness. We don't have to run from him anymore because God doesn't see the failure. He sees Jesus, and he loves us anyway. So I encourage you, child of God, Stop listening to the voice in your head that would take you and beat you over the head with the law and instead listen to the Holy Spirit who is crying out to you, you're already forgiven. You're already free. So believe in Jesus and pursue after Him with all your heart and all your mind and let the Spirit fill you and then run with freedom the race that is set before you by looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I'm going to invite you, if you would, to bow your heads and close your eyes and spend some time in the Lord. In prayer, we're going to sit in silence for a few minutes. As we ask God, reveal in my heart the ways that I am trusting in me, the ways that I am Am listening to a voice of condemnation when I should listen to a voice of love and compassion. And Then ask God to breathe His grace and His life into and over you this morning. Spend some time in prayer and then I'll close this in a moment.